Hey everyone, welcome to Wise Up. This week's guest is Calvin Cooper, the CEO of Rove. Fast Company just featured him in an article, and the reason is because he's doing something groundbreaking. Did you know the average young person will spend more than $200,000 on rent without the benefits of owning property? What Calvin has done with Rove is to reimagine renters as stakeholders to help them build wealth. He believes that every renter should be an owner. In this episode, we talk about what that means and how he's helping people not only be a stakeholder in home ownership, but a stakeholder in their own lives. If you're a CEO who's interested in seeing how leading with virtue and building your company around principle, how it can be successful, then this is the episode for you. Enjoy. C-Suite Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Christina DiGiacomo, and this is Wise Up with Christina. And I'm really excited for our guest today, Calvin Cooper, because he actually knows a lot about philosophy, and I consider him a philo bro, and we're going to nerd out, and we're going to talk about his company, Rove. He's the CEO of Rove. And I just think he's doing some amazing groundbreaking work in helping people find their path to home ownership. Rove is founded on the belief that everyone has the right to invest in their home. And they're on a mission to expand access and opportunity for people to own in their community. And with that, renters gain the opportunity to become an actual stakeholder in their residence and earn a return from where they live. And this is, I've never heard anything like this. And I'm just excited to talk to Calvin about this because I think he's really driving a path for people to be able to realize home ownership. And we're gonna talk a little bit about what that means in today's society. We're gonna nerd out on philosophy and we're gonna talk about principles and we're gonna talk about the value of asking good questions in business. I mean, all kinds of stuff uh, because he's really smart. And I just really love his platform around access and opportunity and rentership. So we'll dig into that a little bit too. So I just want to stop talking because Calvin is here and it's good to introduce him. So hi, Calvin. How are you? Hi, Christina. I'm so excited to be with you today. I, I'm pumped. Um, I, I was I was so glad that Brandon introduced us. And in our last conversation, he didn't know this, but my dad taught philosophy. And so um, I actually ended up going on to study this um, as a minor uh, in college. And so it's just fun to catch up with somebody else who has the same passion. And I believe what you're doing in your work is just so important, especially now. Um, so thank you for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. And I'll 
immediately I'm having this mental picture of a little Calvin at the dinner table, not eating his broccoli, and your dad saying, if you don't eat your broccoli, you're going to have to read The Republic. So than that. <laughs> it was worse than that? It was worse than that. Actually, so my dad lived in Virginia, and I would visit him over the summer, uh, my younger brother and I. And, you know, you're excited to be out of school. You're going to play. And I'm like 12, and my dad's got all these books scattered messily in his room on the floor. And he's like, great. So now I've bought you a book so you can learn how to make a website. Can you read this passage, uh, read, read Nietzsche? And I'm like, I can't spell Nietzsche. I don't want to read this. I want to play outside. And that was how I would be greeted. So, so. <laughs> oh, you know, your dad really threw you into like the deep end there, like with Nietzsche of all of all philosophers, although incredibly valuable because he's all about the why, you know, he's all if we don't have our why, there's no reason to live. I mean, that's that was his whole deal. So but man, that's heady stuff. Yeah, especially when my mom was, uh, she's very um, religious. She's a, a Christian, uh, but we went to a Pentecostal church. So two very opposite worldviews that um, I was so fortunate to have instilled in me because it creates enough cognitive dissonance that forces you to really think for yourself. And so I was really lucky in that regard. So there, I'm sure there was just this, in a lovely way, this kind of tension, right, that generated lots of questions or, you know, thoughtfulness around these ideologies that you were growing up with. And, you know, I can't even imagine the kinds of arguments your parents would have, like, between the the sort of Pentecostal point of view and the philosophical point of view. Anyway, we could probably spend the entire interview just talking yeah. about like the fun at the dinner table, but I really want to get into the work that you're doing because I just feel it's so purpose-driven and mission-driven. And so, you know, tell us a little bit about the principle or the philosophy behind Rove and the work that you're doing. Yes, absolutely. So Rove is on a mission to turn every renter into an owner. But we're moving beyond the traditional binary choice between renting and home ownership. Um, and, and so what that means is that every renter living at a property that offers rentership, um, is what we're calling this new category, owns a stake in the property just for living there. By default, you are a stakeholder. And being a stakeholder uh, bestows more than a financial benefit. It's really about citizenship and community and being a part of your neighborhood um, and sharing in, in, in mutual destiny. And, and so um, everybody living there just for living at a property and paying rent is a stakeholder. You have a financial stake in the property. Um, and then you can grow your stake. You can buy more. You can buy in more uh, on your own terms. And so this idea really came out of my own journey. Um, at the time, I was a venture capitalist um, when we came up with the idea of Rove. And I was turning 30. And I did the math. And how much money did I spend in the past um, 10 years on rent? And it's astonishing. The average millennial is going to spend 
$200,000 in lifetime rent. And millennials have zero net real estate wealth. It's astonishing. But I didn't want to buy a home because I didn't intend on living there for more than five years. And the math didn't work. And so I started to ask myself questions. Why do I want to buy a house? Do I really want to own a home? Or is there just something missing in the current arrangement with renting? Because I really enjoy the flexibility in the neighborhood and the community that I lived in. And I, and I, I wanted to just own a piece of that building. Why it, it, it got deeper into more first principles about what is the importance of ownership. And so when you, when you start to think about that, some interesting possibilities arise. We don't have to have a 30-year mortgage. It makes no sense. If you Google what the term mortgage means, it literally means death pledge. Dang, we talked about that when we first met. I looked it up and I was like, I knew it wasn't a good, a good thing. <laughs> Anything that's named death pledge isn't a good thing. And, and so... If we were to create an opportunity for everyone to own in, in our community today from, from scratch with all the tools and resources that we have available to us, it wouldn't be built in the same way that we, we built this system. We would build it in a better way. And so Rove is on that journey. That's what we're doing. We're, we're turning every renter into an owner. I love it. I love it. Yeah. The joke that I made was, you know, from my own sort of path regarding home ownership and, and for me in my current situation, it also doesn't necessarily make sense because if I were to mortgage a home, I would be basically purchasing my own coffin. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I would be exactly like that's that's it. I'm in a mortgage for the rest of my life and, and I'm just buying my own coffin. So, you know, it's so funny that you looked up the the original uh, term and it's like, oh, anyway. So death, yeah. <laughs> Get, death. gauge. It's death. pledge. It's death pledge. Yeah, death pledge. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't that sound so morbid when you think about it? Totally does. <laughs> totally does. And, you know, think about sort of also the, you know, you were talking about the sort of binary choice, which I, which I think um, there's something to that, right? So, you know, when people have a binary choice, they are already locked into an either or, an either or dynamic, and that limits people's ability to make choices that are equitable for their own situation. And so what you're doing essentially is you're kind of creating an, an and situation. So it's not either or, it's I can rent and have a, have a stake and with this new category rentership, which opens up options for people to be able to live according to their own circumstances and 
and it liberates them because when you have a sense of freedom in your options and, and your choices, you're a happier person, clearly. And a lot of what has been historically presented to us, especially in this domain of homeownership, has been extraordinarily compartmentalized, extraordinarily rigid, and dictated to us by those from a very legacy archaic point of view. I mean, death pledge just sounds freaking medieval to me. Right. So, right? Absolutely. The whole concept is. And it has been used as a tool of oppression. When you think about systemic racism and inequality in America, our institutions redlined and excluded whole communities of people from our economy. And the we're living in the, the, the results of that. And so as we see with all the civil unrest and the protests against police brutality, um, that's just one aspect of institutional racism in America. It, it, it permeates and ripples out into all aspects of life and especially housing. You bring up a really, so many themes Um, And the thing that's kind of also coming up for me is this idea of exclusion, right? I really feel that the fabric of our society is weakened when there's an exclusionary component to it. It's not how nature works. It's not what Emerson espoused. It's not what all the sages espoused when it came to how the natural laws are supposed to work. The, the way they're supposed to work is that everything, every element, every being, every aspect of the entire whole has a role. And when you exclude or it doesn't have a place, then the whole becomes much weaker. And then there's all these sort of ways that the system has to recalibrate and overcompensate And then you get into sort of these extreme situations and extreme energies and and so on. But it's not the way it's supposed to work. So I'm just like blowing this whole idea out of what you're talking about, that when an entire population is excluded from participating in the in the system and in the dynamic that whole system is is weakened and i think that that is one of the driving forces for a lot of the issues that we're experiencing right now as a society thoughts oh you you're you're absolutely right i've actually been thinking about this a lot lately um because we're coming up on the 4th of july and what's interesting is our founding fathers of america were philosophers They thought deeply about these things. Every word in the Declaration of Independence was debated and meditated on. Uh, The fact that they wrote in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal, that we have certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness uh, was an interesting choice of words because Jefferson... um, uh, was inspired by the words of a previous philosopher, um, Locke, and he wrote about life, liberty, and estate. Furthermore, he wrote about life, liberty, health, um, 
indolency of body and the possession of outward things, right? That's really interesting. Our constitution talked about life, liberty, and happiness, which was a more transcendent way of, and more expansive way of talking about what was talked about by, by Locke. And how that interacts with ownership and equality was further written about by John Adams, our second president and founding father and framer, um, who wrote that in order to preserve equal liberty and public virtue, that we would need to make the acquisition of land ownership easy to every member of society. To make a division of land into small quantities. And they understood that ownership, and particularly land ownership, was more than a financial thing. It was about citizenship and and community. It's a very human thing. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. It's and it's about roots, right? Uh, you know, certainly there's certain cultures where you know maybe it's sort of more nomadic than others, but it's all about roots. It's all about being connected to other people. And the fact that that is a basic human need is to be connected to other people. I mean, I think there's just from a practical standpoint um, in our needs, we, we need shelter. We need other people, right? We need food. We need water. What, it, what, is, what it provides that? Land provides that. Home provides that. So we're getting even into the what we need intrinsically as human beings in order to survive the actualization of us beyond that, which is, you know, sort of the emotional connections that we make with other people, the sort of, you know, the community aspect, our own actualization and feeling like, oh, we now have our own place. You know, all of that is, is sort of an outgrowth, but connection to land connection to the earth connection to something that is rooted in in who we are as human beings and how we survive is so essential and what's in, uh, oh, oh, go ahead. yeah you go oh, you go were you, it, it was it's the fundamental basis of economics which is transforming the our raw natural resources human intelligence and capital to create goods and services in an economy. Um, and so it, it all starts with the land. And we're having this interesting debate in society in America right now about what is our responsibility to each other and to ourselves. Uh, we're, we're really caught in a, a very, um, we've devolved into a very two-dimensional um, world of thinking. And we're not talking about philosophy anymore like our founding fathers and how they debated. It's gotten into some really weird uh, fallacies when people are arguing. Um, but what we're really talking about, if you think about it in, in philosophical terms and political science, would be the difference between um, ethical egoism, maximizing for self, in and of itself being intrinsically good, and um, ethical altruism. What we hear people debate is like, oh, altruism and philanthropy and 
communal ownership and safety nets are good. And then the other side is like, oh, those are bad and they have negative impacts. And then other people are saying, oh, maximizing for self and enterprise, good. And other people are saying bad. But it, I've been thinking a lot of lately about um, Aristotle and virtue ethics and um, the vices being the two extremes and the virtue being the, um, the mean between the two. Think about ownership and land and distributing the fruits of our economy. Uh, we've got to create systems that everybody can both maximize. And that really is utilitarian. And so when, we, when I thought about Rove and how we would build a system in real estate that could better serve society, it's really the mean between egoism and altruism. It's about the utilitarian system that everybody owns, but you can also have the agency to maximize your ownership at an individual level, at a collective level, at an enterprise level. And that's how we came to this mentorship concept. So brilliant. So rich. And I, you know, I think also too, one of the things that I feel we're trying to shake off or at least reconcile, come to terms with is the collective, you know, the notion of a collective, right? The, the, this sort of collectivism um, appeal of we're all in this together, you know, everyone sort of contributes uh, that sort of altruistic nature, but there's this legacy idea of this rugged individualism philosophy that this country has, has just, it, it was, it's just been a big part of how people uh, not only acquired land in this country, justified the acquisition of that land, justified their holding on to their land, um, there's the whole manifest destiny kind of thing. But so there's this whole notion of like, pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps, uh, fierce self-reliance. And, you know, you are in, in control of your own thing and then everybody else is like other. And so, you know, there's in and of itself, if you look at the principles of rugged individualism, it is really based on some of the stoic kind of idea of, desire an outcome that you can control and that you are responsible for your actions and you are responsible for what you can control. And so that side of this sort of rugged individualism, I can kind of get on board with. The problem is, is that it was co-opted with an economic lens and co-opted by certain powers that be throughout the centuries and, and decades of our country to then be espoused as this, you know, what you were talking about, this egoistic kind of view of how we look at ourselves and, and particularly in this country. And so for me, it's kind of, I feel like there's this whole battle of ideologies that are happening. And maybe this is what you're talking about in terms of the, the fallacies that people are kind of throwing at each other. But in the midst of all of this, I think what has been lost is just genuine thoughtfulness, just really taking a step back and thinking things through. And because everyone's just sort of rushing around the how, like how do we execute on this? How do we do this? How do we commodify this? How do we make money off of this? 
without actually taking a step back and thinking about, is this the right thing to do? Who gets impacted, et cetera? And this is where bringing in philosophy could be really helpful. Absolutely. The, the deeper questions about why um, and, and reality and existence and what we're trying to achieve, uh, happiness, and to take a step back you're right. Um, there's something really beautiful in the, the, the rights perspective about stoicism and, um, and doing for yourself. You really can't help others unless you first help yourself and love. You can't really love others unless you first love yourself. And um, there is something sacred about protecting yours and your family and your country and humanity and the world. Right. Um, and, and so there, there's a lot of beauty in the right. And there's also a lot of beauty in the left and altruism and community ownership and um, thinking of others that, that's really important. And few have stepped back to see that some of the things that are consequences coming out of right-leaning politics and, and economies uh, are things that were co-opted from something that was very beautiful or started beautiful. Similarly, on the left, um, many of the ideas are quite wonderful um, that the principles were built on, but they were also co-opted by other people who had greed and did not live up to the principles. And, and once you understand that, you start to think about virtue ethics in Aristotle, where you've got Humility, pride, and hubris. Humility being a vice and hubris being a vice and pride being the, the, the mean between the two, the justifiable sense of self-worth. And if you think about it, humility is, is not a, a virtue. It's, it's actually a lack of self-esteem and a lack of self-efficacy and self-worth and self-love. It doesn't come from a place of love. Neither does hubris. Hubris lacks self-love and um, the ability to be vulnerable and honest. It doesn't come from a place of truth. So pride really recognizes the value in, in the two extremes and brings them together. I, I think the same applies for economics and politics. And I think we could use some more virtue ethical thinking in our society right now. One of, my, one of my favorite virtues, one of my favorite Aristotelian virtues is magnanimity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to say. I, yes. First of all, can I just tell you how proud I am right now that I actually <laughs> was able to say that <laughs> without tripping up? Because magnanimity is a hard word to say, but I, I just, it's my personal favorite. Um, this notion of, of opening up, like, what is the world for me now? You know, this notion of just being, just being completely open. Um, temperance is another, but, you know, but magnanimity, I feel it's like, if you can just embody that, I feel like all the virtues just sort of, you know, they just sort of fall right into place. Um, so yeah, that one, that one is my favorite because I think when you have an open view of not only an immediate situation, uh, and removing yourself 
out of that situation, you see a whole bigger picture. And that picture can extend beyond your situation. It extends to another person's situation. It extends to, you know, to more people and it, it keeps growing and growing so that you then just have like this open world view. And to make decisions or to generate opinions from a place of magnanimity is to, you know, is to, for the most part, really be walking truth and be in truth as close as you possibly can to be in that truth. Um, because it's the truth, the universal truth. It's not your truth or someone else's truth or maybe the three sides to a story. When you're in magnanimity, you're as close to the universal truth as you possibly can be. That's why it's my favorite virtue. Yeah, and, and I, I think there's, there's, so, there's such a rich, richness in virtue ethics that can be applied to everything, as you're, as you're mentioning. Like to kind of make it tangible, I think about this in real estate development. Um, I, I first was of the mindset of, man, F the developers. Man, they're greedy and they're gentrifying communities. Um, but I um, have become good friends and, and with developers. I had some good friends who were in real estate before this. And they are many of them are really good people. Actually, most of them are trying to build communities and they're trying to live their values through their work. And on the other side, and I hate that there are sides of fences, you've got the community often in in zoning commission meetings and neighborhood committees, not wanting development. And and the business community doesn't really understand the place that they're coming from sometimes. They just view them as an obstacle to move out of the way so they can achieve a goal in real estate to get a project approved. But the place that the activists are coming from is a place of altruism and fairness and equity. And and so they want to achieve something that's really good. So both sides, um, to, to use the term, are coming from a place of truth and love, but there's actually another place that's a higher principle, that's the mean between the two that maximizes both good for the enterprise, the developer, the investors, maximizes community outcomes and societal outcomes. And that would be the, the middle. And what that, what that looks like in practice is if we don't build more properties, we're gonna have prices for, of rent and housing continue to skyrocket. In many cities, the reason why rent is so high is because there is a lot more demand than there is supply. It's an artificial thing that we can solve by allowing development to happen. Development at all levels. It needs to be high-end, very expensive properties, middle-income properties, low-income properties. So to stand in the way of development is not helping. It's counterproductive. That's why I'm a firm believer in Yes in My Backyard movement, Yimbyism. Uh, but there's also something to be said about fairness and allowing people to own in their community and not be pushed out. Um, and too often, the business community is not expanding the value chain enough. And so what if 
everybody living in the community owned a piece of all the real estate in the community. So as new development um, happened, all the renters in the community actually gained value. That would be very powerful when properties are being redeveloped or, or repurposed. All the value you've built up over the years just from living there and the stake that you've also added to, you're going to be able to receive value and participate in the creation of that community. That, that absolutely changes the whole game when you stop thinking about things in terms of extremes and start thinking about what is the virtue that is the mean in between those two vices. Wow. You know, all I'm thinking about right now is sometimes the right way to make a decision is to allow people the right to have a decision. What you're talking about is giving people an opportunity to have a say in how their lives are run and be part of that decision-making process. And and that they that value that we create the fruits of our society that everybody has access to that as well. It's about, it's about agency and it's about economics. Absolutely. Agreed. And you know, it just really also drives towards the whole democratic ideal. Mm -hmm. It's the democratization of this home ownership and land space and the conversation around that. It's like, how can we make it fair where people have a say, but everyone benefits, even those who are creating the pieces and the elements for everyone? It's all sort of a a, kind of a mini democratic process. And, And, you know, it's so interesting, Calvin, when we get into these conversations together, how we're always able to just sur- always surface the underlying philosophy or principle in whatever challenge or whatever open question there is about your work or work in general or society in general. That's and- what you're doing to promote um, philosophy in our capitalist society is so important. It's absolutely essential to our democracy. That's why I keep quoting them. But that's why John Adams said to preserve democracy, to preserve the balance of power, we also have to have balance in the share of land ownership. Like you, you just mentioned that uh, democracy, and, and it's just it's it's not just a part of it. It's critical to maintaining our system. Wealth inequality. It's not a threat to capitalism in America. It is, it, is, it is, in fact, essential to preserving our republic. And when you think about that, you, it changes the way you look at business and what kind of business you would, how you would conduct your business, what kind of businesses you would enter into. It changes everything. And the possibility for happiness for the business owner and the possibility of, you know, of having a profitable enterprise also comes in. Because let's just take your space for a, se- for a second. Like, what if, you know, because one of the, the values or the value that you bring to people who are, in, who are landlords and developers is a higher retention rate from, from tenants. 
So imagine how much happier a, a landlord's life would be if they're not constantly having to deal with the turnover, not constantly having to deal with chasing people down or having these sort of icky kind of relationships with their tenants. And it's just like this really, it's a, it becomes a, a happier relationship. People view their the property totally differently because they are a stakeholder. They're in, you're in it together. Imagine, so there was a $60 billion wealth transfer from Main Street to Wall Street. And then when COVID happened and triggered this current recession, a lot of people were worried that tenants wouldn't be able to pay rent because the average American couldn't afford a $400 emergency. And when you have 40 million Americans file for an unemployment, you know they're not going to be able to pay when you think about happiness, it's it's all it's that a better relationship, like you were mentioning, but it's also economic. Imagine if every renter had the financial savings and wherewithal, they had a stake, they could sell their stake in the capital markets, pay their rent. And the ones who didn't have the capacity to pay rent would, because they're a stakeholder, have a vested interest in finding a way. And their neighbors would have a vested interest and not just rent strike. They would have an interest in helping each other. We would be moving from a me to a we situation where we're all in this together. And that would be absolutely beautiful. And it would be good for business, but even more so, it would be good for people and society. Wow. I really don't have anything to add on that. That was so beautiful. That was so beautiful. And I think, I, I mean... Like I said, when we were when we were first sort of getting together on this interview, I said I think the conversation's just going to take care of itself. I think I asked one question and then like off to the races. And so you know we've we've come up on time because what you just said was so beautiful, and I I really don't I I really would like to just kind of end it there. Um, you know, from from your point of view. Uh, you know, is there anything else that you would like to share with people or you would like people to know about you, about the company, about what you're, what you stand for? This is just your opportunity to share final thoughts. Final thoughts. I just want to thank you for having me on today. I want to thank the listeners. I think this is such important work and I just want to encourage you to continue to move this forward. I want the listeners to support all of the work that you're doing now more than ever, we need philosophy integrated in every aspect of our society. It started and it's, it's lo- we've lost our way and we need it. We need to reclaim our foundation and this deeper level of thinking. So thank you. I appreciate everything you're doing. Well, thank you, Calvin. You are a philo warrior. We stand together and trying to spread the good word about being more thoughtful and bringing back philosophy. And so I also appreciate you for being here and nerding out with me and really helping us to wise up. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.